Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also curious if any of you are listening to this on an airplane as you do a miles churn. Uh, now, I don't know if you know what a miles churn is, but that is where people try to find exploits in the airline mileage system, right? The frequent flyer miles, and then use those exploits to accrue miles, which are kind of like a, a very specific script sort of money, and then use that to enrich themselves just by flying a whole bunch. And this is a really devoted scene out there. There are a bunch of sites and message boards and blogs all about how to churn best. Also, I have a couple stories for you about extreme mileage churn. Here's one story. The year was 1999. Engineer David Phillips saw Healthy Choice Packaging, like the Healthy Choice food brand. The packaging offered 100 air miles for its pudding cup packages. And so what David did is he spent over $3,000 on 12,150 Healthy Choice pudding cups. Then he brought in Salvation Army volunteers to peel the labels for him in exchange for getting to eat the pudding. Uh, and then he cashed in the miles and eventually accrued 1.25 million miles on American Airlines and lifetime American Airlines gold status uh, by exploiting this one brand's thing that was going on. Also, here's another story for you. The year is again 1999, the year of Miles Grift. Uh, I, I don't know why, but um, a man named Steve Belkin saw that there might be some kind of Miles exploit he could do with the Los Angeles to Las Vegas route. He hired 40 acquaintances to fly back and forth between LAX and Las Vegas for two months and uh, use his frequent flyer number and he'd pay for it and everything. And for a pretty reasonable investment of cash, he earned 10.5 million air miles, uh, which is uh, something you can do. And then one more story here. The year is 2001. A man named Steve Belkin, same guy as the previous story, he started looking worldwide. He was like, great, I've done the LAX to Vegas thing. Boring. I want to be like a Bond villain of this. Or like a Bond hero? I don't know. They're, they're all international. Anyway. Steve Belkin hired unemployed rice farmers in northern Thailand to take four flights a day between two northern Thai cities because the entire flight cost $8 American. And this earned him millions and millions of air miles. Also, he bought so many flights that the U.S. DEA, like the Drug Enforcement Agency, started investigating him because they were trying to figure out if he was some kind of drug runner because he was buying so many weird, specific international flights. They also believed he must be, quote, the stupidest drug runner they'd ever seen, end quote, if that was his goal. Turned out he was just doing this miles churn because that's what people do. I think those are fascinating stories on their own. Also, I think that process and that overall air mile gamification kind of thing, it has led to an absolutely wonderful book uh, full of humor and full of depth and just a work of art, I feel, that springs in some ways from the existence of those weird air mile systems. The book is titled Medallion Status, True Stories from Secret Rooms, and our guest today is its author. His name is John Hodgman. Yeah, John John Hodgman is on the show. Maybe I kind of buried the lead with all that air miles stuff. It's really exciting we get to talk to him. You may know John from all kinds of different things. For instance, television. He was a correspondent and resident expert on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Uh, he was in the iconic Mac and PC commercials for Apple. And he's been a guest star or recurring character on dozens of other shows uh, that we will have linked. 
You may also know John Hodgman from podcasting, mainly his show Judge John Hodgman, which is fantastic and is on tour soon. And you may know him also from his books. This is not his first book that he's written, Medallion Status. He did a trilogy of books of fake facts that are just incredible and written as John Hodgman, a character in an Upper West Side Observatory or the Utopian Community of Park Slope, indexing the world for you in a very uh, silly and amazing way. From there, he has now written two memoirs of uh, true comedic stories, including this new book. The first was called Vacation Land, and uh, in the second book, Medallion Status, it's very much a continuation of the kind of thing he is doing in that book. And it's at the core of what me and John are talking about this week because he has all sorts of experiences and unique stories of uh, not just crisscrossing the country to achieve a more powerful airline status and accrue more miles, but really to explore these secret rooms and privileges and fancy things that people all over the world are constantly seeking. We all want to feel included and special and important. And weirdly, there are specific corporations and secret clubs, all of which we'll talk about, that have a business model designed on giving that to you. And again, that book is called Medallion Status. You can get it at bit.ly slash medallion status. You can also find out where John Hodgman is going at johnhodgman.com slash tour for book dates and also live podcasts. He has a lot going on, and I'm so glad he took the time to share this way that being alive is more interesting than people think it is with us today. So please sit back or lounge around in the cocoon of luxury that is Delta Diamond Medallion Status, the airline experience that makes you feel like you are too important to die. Either way, here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with John Hodgman. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. The book is titled Medallion Status, True Stories from Secret Rooms. And uh, John, I'm so excited to be talking to you. I'm also curious, like, yes. how, is it is it a spoiler? Is it too much to reveal your current status with your beloved airline or details therein? Yes, my, my book is called Medallion Status. It's me, John Hodgman. I wrote it. And Medallion <laughs> Status... The the intro will lay that out. That oh, it will? Be okay, okay yeah, I just yeah, don't yeah. know what to do. Did you tell them where to go to, to order the book? Yes. Yeah. Did you? I better check again. <laughs> B-I-G.ly slash medallion status, all one word, all capital letters. So medallion, <laughs> yeah. Medallion status obviously is named for the loyalty program of an airline that I do not name in the book because they're not paying me money. But I'll just tell you and all the cracked listeners, it's Delta. Delta has the different medallion levels, silver. I don't even like saying silver medallion. Such a garbage medallion. <laughs> nothing. You get nothing with silver. Gold, you get to go into sky priority lanes, but those aren't what they used to be. And then platinum oh, okay. medallion, and then tip top, there's diamond medallion. There was a beyond diamond atmosphere, a high and rarefied air called Delta 360. Oh. That certain real celebrities, actual celebrities, just would be given to them to oh. encourage them to fly Delta. Like presidents and kings and so on. Most consumers will top out at diamond or double diamond. And double diamond means you've earned enough medallion qualifying miles that year to be diamond both in the coming year and the year after that. <laughs> and, I, How? and I met some kids going for double diamond I was flying back from Seattle from a show, yeah, and I was in my aisle seat, and I was flying in in business class. Okay. So I, you know, I, I I picked out my seat. I'd staked my claim, <laughs> and the young woman next to me said, "Do you mind?" And I that, I hate that when they start. I know what they're going to say. They want to switch seats, right? Yeah. And the person next to you in the airplane goes, "Do you mind?" And she points to this young man three rows ahead. She said, "Do you mind if? Would you mind switching 
with him so that I could sit with my friend? And I was like, well, yeah, I do mind. I, <laughs> I picked this seat for a reason. I want to believe that I have some measure of control in this life. I, I don't know if I sit well, over there whether this plane will land, but okay. So then I switched, and I was so mad that this young couple, like, forced me out of my chosen seat <laughs> so that they could just be together and in love. But then I realized they weren't in love. I was listening to their conversation. They barely knew each other. They're like, where are you from? So what are you doing? And then I heard them mention something oh. about Diamond Medallion. And I'm like, wait a minute. Are you two on a, on a miles run? And they said, yes. No way. So if I remember correctly, they had flown from New York these were connecting flights, New York to Seattle to Japan, got off the airplane, got back on an airplane, flew no. from Japan to Seattle, which is where I was coming back from my show. And now we're flying back to New York. And, and it was only when they both got off the plane in Japan and then got on the plane again to come back <laughs> that they realized they were both doing the same run. They didn't know each other before. So they weren't a young couple in love. They were a couple of young miles runners who wanted to Obvious. swap stories and trade tips and I said, are you guys going on a miles run? And they said, yes, we met along the way. And I said, I'm so happy you're sitting together. I thought, <laughs> this, I, that I can respect for sure. Good right. luck to you. Good luck to you and Godspeed. And they were trying right. to make double diamond. <laughs> well, you opened with a question, which is, what is my current medallion status? Yes. And my current medallion status is platinum medallion on Delta. I see. And my book is very much about chasing diamond medallion both the literal metaphoric fake medallion that <laughs> the delta offers that i that i that i totally disrupted my my home life in order to try to get because someone in the world had a medallion that i didn't have and i wanted it an imaginary medallion and right. i desperately wanted to be loved by a major corporation <laughs> and then uh, it, the book is also about losing that status or losing all kinds of status right. because it, it is about true first person essays that are mostly funny some mad some of them quite profound and moving i dare say and i will agreed yeah. but mostly drawn from my time flying back and forth across the country when i was a very famous minor television personality <laughs> and and the book sort of takes you into all of the different you know exclusive parties and secret rooms and first class lounges that even the most minorist of fame gain give you admittance to and then what it felt like to be kicked out of those secret rooms and secret clubs one by one by one until you realize you're not even as famous as the least famous corgi on Instagram. <laughs> Linus the corgi. Sorry, Linus. You're the best, but the least. <laughs> I met Linus the corgi at the same party that I met um, Chompers the corgi, naturally. Much more popular corgi on Instagram. And I was at a secret, yeah. I, was at a, I was in a secret room. I was in Adam Savage's secret workshop in, in, in an unknown location in San Francisco. He had invited a bunch of comedians who had just performed in San Francisco Sketchfest to come to this secret party. Invitation only. And, yeah. you know, Adam Savage had this whole room because Adam Savage's passion, besides myth busting, is prop replication. So he makes props from movies, like he'll, he'll make a Maltese Falcon out of the exact same materials that were available to them in, you know, 1930-whatever, when they made that original prop. And he'll make yeah. it perfectly. And he's got all kinds of crazy things, like a, he's got a Han Solo and Carbonite, and he's got a whole R2-D2 that he made himself, and he's got, you know, Star Trek captain's chair in there. And I'm having a great time just sitting in the captain's chair and making the beep-boop sounds with the buttons. <laughs> And you, I see you these... sat exactly where I would sit. That's, yeah. that's very good work. Yeah, yeah that's right. We're, well, you know, the two, of, the two of us, we're captains. Yeah. 
You know what I'm talking captain about. Captain Medallion. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you look for the best chair and you sit down on it. I'm so happy to be there. I'm the captain. I'm so excited. And I look across the room and there are these two corgis being held by these humans. And I turned to my friend Kevin. I said, these corgis are getting a lot of attention. I said to Kevin, who invited these people with the corgis? I thought this was an exclusive party. Right. They're not comedians. <laughs> Let alone humans. Yeah. You know? Well, no, I thought it was the humans. I'm like, who... Who invited these weirdos with the corgis, and why did they bring their corgis? And Kevin says, the humans were not invited. (laughs) The corgis were invited, because they're Chompers the Corgi and Linus the Corgi. Two famous, one more famous than the other. Sorry, Linus. But two famous corgis of Instagram who live in San Francisco, and Kevin's colleague, Connor Lestoka of Rift Tracks, loves these corgis on Instagram, and he learned that they were in San Francisco, and so he invited them to the party. And now these corgis are getting all this attention. And I had just done a comedy show on stage in English, (laughs) standing on two feet, standing upright. You know, I can sweat through all of my skin. I don't just sweat through my nose and tongue. So why are these dogs here? Because they're famous. And that's when I realized I don't know what entertainment is anymore and, and realized my status was dropping. Oh, and the and the the stories in this book are really they are good. so They're rich really and good. funny at the same time. Okay, oh, yeah, I'm being facetious. Thank you for that. And then alongside all that, I feel like there are a couple through lines of this that uh, where the world is more fascinating than people realize. Like there are all these secret rooms everywhere that uh, there are just yes. these parties where people are showing you Hollywood props. And then also there are all these airlines making a game out of being loyal to them. Yes. Like, I, I'm really impressed by your uh, monogamy with Delta. Like, you have really stuck with them, uh, as I understand it from the book. They've really been your go-to. Can you see a situation where you would switch at all? I can't. I've got too much yeah. invested. <laughs> like, you know, there was a, there was I, a time I when I flew yeah. American a fair amount. Oh. But then that job ended, because they that job... <laughs> you know, this all happened because... For a brief period of time, I was on television, and sometimes I had to fly to different places. And I was also going on various tours, book tours and comedy tours to perform live and and, and do stuff. So flights were purchased for me, and you're kind of at the mercy when you have a job. that If they're going to fly you, they kind of get to pick. So I was uh-huh. an American for a while, but then I, then I lost that status. And then I started bulking up on Delta without even realizing it because I was on a cable comedy show called Married for a couple of years where I played yeah. – Nat Faxon's third best friend, not not best friend, not second best friend. I was like the the third in line to succession to the best friend. Right. I was like I was like the speaker of the house of friendship. It's sort of like a Batman's rogues gallery. Like the yeah. range of friends is yeah. what really makes it rich. Right. You know? And that yeah. was, so that was when I was flying. The, you know, because I was a recurring guest star. Technically, they were obliged to pay for my flights back and forth, and they were obliged to fly me first class. So that's how this whole sick game started, because I'm racking (laughs) up these MQMs, that's medallion qualifying miles, as I fly back and forth the country trying desperately to stay on television. My kids are upset that I'm away from them. It's the first time in their lives, and they've noticed that I've left them. They're at that age. When they were little, they didn't care. Now they're old, and it's starting to wear on them. But I'm, I'm out there and wondering, you know, why am I doing this? This role is truly just the third best friend. It's hard. I was spending most of my time in Los Angeles living with Paul F. Tompkins and Janie Haddad in their guest room. I felt like yeah. a combination of a, a divorced dad or <laughs> and their child. <laughs> so it was a little disorienting. I wasn't feeling that great. And then one day I'm, I'm about to fly off again to go back into the world and I'm feeling bad because I'm you know leaving my family again. 
But the person at the gate, as I'm getting on the plane, says, and I'd never even noticed that this had happened. But this person looks at my, my boarding pass and says, thank you, Mr. Hodgman. Thank you for being gold. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and that's when I realized that I had gotten up to gold medallion, whatever that was. I had no idea. I wasn't even paying attention. All I knew yeah. is that a stranger had said to me, thank you for being gold. And it was the best thing that had ever happened to me in my life. <laughs> I felt so profoundly seen because we all want to be gold. You know, we all want, we all want to believe that we're special, that we're gold. We're trying to convince the world that we're gold. No one's noticing that we're gold. We get to the point where yeah. maybe we're thinking we're just telling ourselves we're gold, but we're not gold. And maybe someday someone's going to come along and see my non-goldness and say, get Hodgman out of here. He's not gold. <laughs> Put him with the silvers in life. <laughs> or even worse, the Sky Mile members, the worst. <laughs> or maybe Steerage, not, basically. Or maybe not even see me at all, you know. And so to have someone yeah. say, thank you for being gold, is like, mm. you know, the book is a lot about being seen and, and what these, what these airlines, you know, the, I, I talk a lot about getting recognized when you're on television and how it, sometimes it happens at inopportune moments, but it's always a gift because most people aren't seen and recognized in this life, not even within their own families. You know, people want to be seen. Yeah. And that's where the airlines get you, right? Because they get you chasing, <laughs> chasing this... <laughs> This completely arbitrary level of quote-unquote status where someone says to you, thank you for being gold, that's when you start chasing that status. You Also, you mentioned that the status chasing, there's a, a game element to it. And yes. like, after reading this, I went and checked, and uh, the, the primary airline I fly is American. And I found out that in the American Airlines app, there's this whole system of just little rings that are filling in like a Fitbit. Yeah. Of, uh, but instead of fitness, it's for how often you've sat in a plane and experienced radiation. Yeah. You know, like it's... Yeah. it's <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah, <laughs> the strangest uh, form of achievement. Yeah, yeah. Delta but it, is but the same exciting. thing. They have they have a series of you know little literal health bars <laughs> that you're trying to replenish, right? You know, <laughs> by flying all over the country, by taking jobs that you don't need. I, I, you know, I took jobs that I didn't need because I was like, well, at least I can fly there. I'll get a few more MQMs. Yeah. Well, also, I wonder if this is a spoiler too. But there's a, a point in the book where you realize that. If you take one more flight, you will achieve diamond and you will get there and it will be a thing for you. And then you yes. have like sort of a crisis of conscience of do I do this or not? It's fascinating. Yeah. No, because the, you know, it got toward the end of the year and m my, my job as third best friend had come to an end because that <laughs> show had ended. Yes. And it was also the same year that The Daily Show with Jon Stewart had come to an end. And I had chosen also to no longer continue to be on the show. And suddenly I wasn't on any television at all anymore, which, you know, I think every American can understand how awful that is. <laughs> Probably the most relatable thing. But it was a big, it was a big inflection I, point in my career where I didn't know quite what was next. And I was kind sure. of, and, and that's a scary time. You know, we all have these moments where our, where our statuses shift and our, and we don't know what's next for us and we're confused and. You're up at 2 a.m. and you get an email from Delta saying, you haven't flown for several days. What's wrong? You are only 7,000 medallion qualifying miles from going diamond. And it's <laughs> and you have to do it by December 30th if you want to make it for next year. And it's December oh. 1st. The clock is ticking. The clock is you gotta, ticking. You got to hit it. Yeah. And it was a, I was really compelled by this email that I got from 
this corporation that obviously loves me and wants me to do the best I can get and be the be yes. the diamond that I I believe I can be. But it was also the case that like going into that next year, I didn't have that TV job in LA anymore. No one was going to be paying for me to fly across the country except me. I couldn't afford to you know fly that much. And this is my shot because if I didn't make diamond by the end of the year, I would be platinum all the next year, and then after that, gold. And then my children, even, you know, I would get to spend more time with my children, yes. <laughs> but my children would watch as I dropped down then from gold to silver to nothing. Right. <laughs> this was my shot. I had to take, I feel like I have to take my shot and try to go diamond. So that very night, I, I worked out the only itinerary I could work out where I would get the amount of miles that I needed. It was to do a miles run, basically. It was to fly to L.A. I didn't yeah. have time to stay there. I'd have to get out and then get back on the plane and fly back. And I just imagined what it would be like for my son, who at the time was 10 or 11, and who would be really, I think, I think we're still dealing with the ramifications He's a, of, of my being away for so long during his childhood. Like, and he was wow. particularly hurt and openly hurt about how much I was going away. And it was really hard. And I imagined what I would say to him the next morning when I was like, well, I have to fly to Los Angeles today. And he would be like, I know, for work. And I'd be like, well, <laughs> not, not exactly. <laughs> I have to but go I, get an imaginary medallion. Because <laughs> I, I believe your planned trip was fly from New York to LAX, go to the In-N-Out near LAX for a burger, and then just go back to the airport and get on the plane back to New York. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the plan. Watching Mad Max Fury Road all the way there and back. <laughs> It actually sounded like the best day of my life, but it was profoundly irresponsible, both to my family and to the earth <laughs> and to decency and common sense. But I did make a decision about whether or not to do it. And if you'd like to hear what I did, bit.ly slash M-E-D-A-L-L-I-O-N-S-T-A-T-U-S, all one word, all capital letters. I now understand that, that the destination is at least as important as the journey. At least when it comes to air travel. Yeah. I feel like there's such a wonderful thing of, uh, mourning is too heavy of a word, but almost figuring out how to let go of, of something like, ah, I am a televisionsman. Uh, but also the idea of fame, like is, is anyone famous anymore? Because you have these tales of the corgis being the most exciting people in a room of celebrities right. or, or in Emmys where the property brothers, who seem wonderful, they are, are like wonderful. dominating a red carpet as Jon Stewart is in the background just kind of hanging out. Yeah, right. Uh, like is, is anyone famous anymore? Is everything too broken up? Well, yeah, I mean, I say in my book, Medallion Status by John Hodgman, the one we're talking about, <laughs> I'm not on television that much anymore. And that's okay because neither is television. <laughs> you know, we're just in this sort of quantum state where everything is television. No one is famous. Everyone is a little bit famous and things are shifting. And, you know, it is a book about the dwindling of a certain kind of unexpected and frankly implausible on-camera fame that I had and a shifting towards a new phase in my career and life, I suppose. But in, that's a very specific story. Obviously, it has to be. It's written by me, John Hodgman. But we all have moments in life where our status slips, like through no fault of our own. We, like, we age out of a job or we're parents and our kids get old enough to realize that our jokes aren't funny. And, you know, <laughs> an interviewer at Publishers Weekly pointed out that, like, everyone who's a parent knows what it's like to be famous because when you have little kids, you are the most famous person in the world to them. Like, it is so exciting that you have walked into wow. the room. And every parent goes through the process then of learning what it's like to have fame taken away when their teenage 
child goes, that's not a funny joke, Dad. That's terrible. Dad joke. <laughs> this, wasn't, this wasn't my child. It was uh, a story that I, I should have put in the book, but I forgot to. It was at the, the coffee shop around the corner uh, where I live in, in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And in Park Slope, Brooklyn... I've got a beard and I'm wearing a I'm wearing a hat. I'm also young and hip, right? Never mind. Like <laughs> you forget. It's easy to forget where all of the hipsters are dressing like dads and getting right. having wearing terrible dad mustaches. And there I am, right? I'm I'm also wearing a terrible dad mustache, but I've earned it by being a dad. It's easy to forget yeah. in places like Brooklyn that you're not 25 years old. And I went into the coffee shop and this young woman at the barista asked me what I want. I said, whatever it was that I wanted, coffee. And she was wearing, you know, dungarees, overalls, Oshkosh Bagosh. I was like, I like your overalls. You deserve an award in the category of overall excellence. <laughs> and, she, and she's... <laughs> and I, I'm telling you, that was off the dome. I still got no it. No way. I'm thinking to myself, I still got it. Oh, man. And she just looks at me and she goes, mm-hmm, good dad joke. And that's how I died. I'm no longer alive. Just a ghost. Hey, everybody in the world, if you don't want to die, <laughs> don't make dad jokes to people who are trapped in service jobs who have to serve you. That's terrible. Don't make dad jokes to women who are younger than you and don't comment on what they're wearing. None of your business. Please don't die. Don't make my mistake. Now I'm, a I'm like a ghost. I'm like Jacob Marley of dead, of dead weird dads. I got to go haunt a bunch of middle-aged dads. And say, don't make the mistake I made in life. Don't don't comment on barista's clothing. <laughs> I feel like that Marley, instead of chains, he would have like books about World War II or something. Yeah, or, exactly. Or, you know, like right. <laughs> check out this Wikipedia page about the suspension bridge. <laughs> oh, that's great. What um, was your question? <laughs> It was it was that. Where can I read about suspension bridges? I yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> Check out the Wikipedia page for the Deer Isle Bridge in Deer Isle, Maine. You'll find it interesting. <laughs> you know, it had a very famous twin bridge when it was built. I can't look it up. I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> I, I will look it look up. up look, Google also, Galloping Gertie. Well, I, I don't know if you know that all these episodes have pretty extensive footnotes, so that will be in there. That will oh, be good. right there for people. Yeah. Uh, Along with tours and books and so on. I am curious, especially from having read this and Vacation Land, I'm curious if you would consider yourself like more of an introvert or more of an extrovert or, or somewhere in between, because I, I feel like you're in a position of, that any of us would be probably, of being thrilled that people know who you are and want to talk to you. And then also, you know, preferring a little privacy in Maine and, and only being reached by postcard and so on, you know? I think that I used to be much more extroverted than I am, but I've always gone back and forth. I'm very comfortable alone. I'm an only child, a member of the Super Smart Afraid of Conflict Narcissist Club, so I'm very comfortable being alone. <laughs> but then I've always yeah. wanted, I've, you know, because I was alone so much as a kid, I, I do enjoy the company of others, even under such, you know, bizarre technological circumstances of these, like, you know, dialing into a podcast just to bother someone with my ideas. <laughs> But I, you're right. I mean, Vacation Land, which is my previous book of first-person stories and essays and jokes and ha-has and musings, was very much about how I do feel that my body is getting ready to disappear into the woods of Maine, where we live part of the time. And probably culture is on board with that. I think probably culture is like, yeah, why don't you make, you know, it's like it's time for us older white guys to make some room in this culture. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, uh, but I still enjoy, 
you know, performing and and podcasting and talking to people. The nice thing about the Judge John Hodgman podcast, which I do, is that I get to talk to people all over the world and interact with them. Uh, and I certainly love it when people come up to me and say, I, I like what you do. Because, as I say, it's, you know, it's a gift to be seen. And would I want you to break into my house in Maine <laughs> and in the middle of the night to say that to me? Honestly, yeah, I would, because that would be... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that would be something that I could that would be a whole new book for me. I could write I could write that that would be a bestseller. Yeah. <laughs> my true home invasion story. Please don't. Please don't <laughs> please don't break into my house. But if you see me in the world and you want to say hello, please do. It's a gift. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. And also, uh there are so many secret rooms we can talk about from this book. We've talked about a few, but I yeah. I I always feel like uh at least with me, I, I lean a little bit toward introversion. And it seems like a little bit of extroversion is necessary to get into a lot of the really exciting secret rooms, right? Because there are like clubs people pay to get into, but there are other ones where, you know, just knowing people a bit, then you're invited to the SF Sketchfest party where, where yeah. Adam Savage has constructed all the pop culture. You know? Yeah, that's right. Those corgis were good at networking. That's correct. <laughs> They're definitely extroverts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, their secret, the, the, the subtitle of the book is True Stories from Secret Rooms. Some of the secret rooms include the first class cabin, the various secret sky clubs at the airport. I sneak into a, a secret society at Yale, my alma mater. And then there's a hotel that is a, a, a very fancy and storied Hollywood hotel that I got to stay in for a long time through various jobs. So much so that I, I began to become deluded enough to think that I was sort of family there. Yeah. And, and not just someone paying, for, you know, taking all of my cash from the job and throwing at the hotel as fast as possible because <laughs> they're really good at making you feel like you're the only person in the world <laughs> except for these other famous friends who are here with you <laughs> but one thing is true that as my renown declined and as my fame withered i mean my money was still good at the hotel but the hotel still was very very decent to me and offered me a lot of consideration that i'm not sure that they offered even more famous people. And I realized that that was because they were adept at treating me like I was the only person in the world, but I never believed that I was the only person in the world. Ah. You know, the better kind of extroversion, of course, is just treating people decently around you all the time, whether they are famous or not, whether they, you know, <laughs> whether they control your fate or not, especially if they're helping you, especially if they are the person who is going to clean up your room after you go. I mean, you be generous with your with your time, your consideration, your decency, and your money. And I think that you will be invited to better and better and more meaningful secret rooms than even the Sky Club at LAX. <laughs> I like that a lot. And even, uh, it, it seems like, especially this book, it, it returns to Maine at the end and so on. It seems like in communities like that, it's simpler to do that, the, the treating everyone like they're you know, uh, just fellow people. Yeah, you know, there's a section in the book, Medallion Status by me, John Hodgman, bit.ly slash medallion status, <laughs> hashtag always be plugging. In, in I feel like I, you're going to get a plugging medallion yeah. by the end. Of, like a uh, thing's going to total up. I yeah. <laughs> Where I talk about how my cat, Petey, that I had for 17 years, passed away. And by passed away, that means I brought him to a professional to be poisoned because he was too sick to live. And how lots of people in their 20s when they first sort of get out on their own, as I did, they will get or adopt or rescue, in my case, rescue from the street, a cat or a dog or a pet of some kind, in part because 
um, they want to feel what it feels like to care for a creature, to care, to care for and pay attention to a thing that cannot give you a job or have sex with you. Which is all you're thinking about in your 20s. <laughs> like, am I bigger than this? Is it possible that I could, that I could care about another living thing without the consideration that, that definitely can't give me a job, or not a paying yeah. job anyway, and definitely cannot have consensual sex with me? Your life gets bigger when you realize that um, the world is full of all kinds of human beings who can't necessarily help you but have a lot to, to offer if you are just nice to them. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's right. Great. That's what I learned as a dad. There you go. <laughs> Don't sneer at me, baristas. I got dad wisdom. And then also in the course of regular life, you've you've sought out. There are some sort of some secret rooms that you kind of sought out as you did this. And uh, uh, one of them you mentioned, your alma mater, Yale, has. They're not just secret rooms. I I was fascinated to learn that they. Sorry, are... I just want to explain to to the listenership. Yale is an accredited four year college in Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> I received I received a Bachelor of Arts from Yale University, the undergraduate program. We will double check your claims about this Yale, uh, but uh, uh, they, have, no, right. they have a website. They have a website. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, check it out. checks out. Yeah, um, but uh, I I didn't know. Like I, I was vaguely aware of Skull and Bones being one secret society. It turns out there are a whole bunch there, and they all have tombs. Like fully, fully like basement vault places for the dead. They're not where basements. people get together. They are not. Oh, basements. they're not basements. Oh, yeah. okay. You know, Yale was founded before the fraternity system, so the exclusively young men of Yale had to devise for themselves their own little groups and clubs, so that men could get together and create secret masturbation rituals and stuff. <laughs> and so that is why at Yale there is a preponderance of male acapella singing groups. More than is needed in all of New Haven, believe me. <laughs> there is more per capita acapella in New Haven, Connecticut than in the rest of the entire world, and no one is doing anything about it. <laughs> and then they also, these young, privileged white men of Yale, formed senior secret societies, most famous of which is Skull and Bones, to which a number of presidents had belonged and, and aspiring presidents. These tombs that they meet in their clubhouses were designed for them by their family architects. So it was usually the architects who had also designed like mansions in Newport. And they're these, they're these yeah. massive, big, civic-looking stone edifice structures dotted throughout campus that look as though they are the nicest libraries in the world, except they do not welcome everybody. <laughs> they only welcome about 50. 15 people <laughs> and they don't have windows and they're called tombs yeah and i had gotten into one i had gone to a party at one i've been invited to a party one that is a little less secretive than skull and bones called book and snake the skull and bones book and snake scroll and key Brazellus, wolf's head manuscript those are the big six. Oh. <laughs> i got invited as a fresh person to go into a party at uh, in book and snake and I was so excited about this because I love the history of secret societies and Freemasons and other secret rooms, Club 33, which I've never been to at Disneyland, all that stuff. It's like, I was going to see a secret thing. I got so excited that um, I got drunk and fell down the stairs. And then I woke up in the hospital and I had no memory of being inside of it. The last memory I had was <laughs> walking up to the door, excited to see the secret rooms. And then they <laughs> stole my memories from me. I'm telling you, the secret societies are good. They know what they're doing. <laughs> 
It's like an alien encounter. But yeah. then I got to go back and you can read about what I saw in Medallion Status, True Stories from Secret Rooms. <laughs> Available now at any bookstore or at bit.ly slash medallion status. Along with that footnote, we will also have a link for folks to, uh, it's an article on Curbed that is about all these different tombs and secret societies at Yale. And uh, you can see a picture of them, including Book and Snake. Uh, Apparently it was built in 1901. It's supposed to be the most perfect reproduction of a Greek temple in the United States. It even has a roof made of marble plates, uh, is what I read. It's Uh, a clubhouse for children. (laughs) (laughs) It has a roof made of marble plates. Yeah. You also have stories, uh, it's sort of tied to that Property Brothers and John Stewart story, but of going to Emmy's Gifting Suites, uh, which you call a secret celebrities only Walgreens. How can that be? How can that exist? <laughs> yeah, that was another secret room I got to go into. I did voiceover work for the Emmys a couple of years in a row, 2009, 2010, if you care. It was my job <laughs> to say fake facts about the winners. So they announced the winner of the category. And there's a period of time while the the winner has to get up from his or her seat or their seat and make their way to the stage. And sometimes it takes a little while. So they wanted to fill that in with something. So since I was on The Daily Show at that time, spinning all kinds of fake facts as their resident expert, (laughs) they asked me what I do fake facts about the winners as they walked up to the stage. I can't remember what any of them were. Go, you can go back and tell. There were some good ones. There were some bad ones. I think I erased my memory of all of the jokes because I realized as I was saying them, why am I making fun of this person who just reached a milestone in their career? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I mean, they're, just, I, they're working actors or, or and not even that. They're costume designers. Do you know what I mean? Like, but in any case, because I was doing this voiceover stuff, they're like, would you like to come to the gifting lounge? And I was like, the wedding what? The gifting lounge. You'll see. And did I ever see? It's a, it's a room in the basement of whatever they call the theater now where the Emmys happen. Is it the Microsoft Theater now? That sounds right. Yeah. It had been the Nokia then, but it was whatever. It's probably Property Brothers Theater now. They probably bought it. <laughs> Just the next piece of technology or a property brother that comes along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, in the basement of this theater, there's a small room that they draped some like black velvet curtains around the walls to make it look a little bit more inviting. And the room is just this big circular tables of freebies. So as a celebrity, or at least me, being invited into this thing, you walk from table to table and see what they have. And some of them have gold watches and some of them have bespoke denim jeans in all different sizes some of them have coffee like huh. nespresso coffee makers some of them have beauty products one year i was there there was a dude there who's like we'll measure your feet and we'll make you some italian leather shoes dress shoes which i still have <laughs> anyway you're allowed to take these products I was allowed to take these products because they had to let me take them. I, I'd been invited in. What they were hoping was that an actual celebrity would come by and take these jeans or take this watch and be photographed wearing them. Oh, I see. Yeah. I think that that was the deal. They just kind of wanted to seed their stuff into famous people's hands. And it didn't take long to realize that I had never heard of any of these brands. <laughs> A lot of the stuff was really junky. Oh, no. <laughs> and I was like, no, thanks. I'll pass on that conditioner. <laughs> pass on that luxury conditioner that I've never heard of. <laughs> And, you know, it's like, mm, I don't need coffee pods right now. Thank you. It was just, it was just, yeah, it was like everything was a little bit travel size and it did feel like a pretty junky celebrities only Walgreens where everything was free. 
aren't all the celebrities immediately heading to some one of these swanky after parties I've heard of? So I'm imagining people trying to have fun cocktails in a in yeah. a hotel pool area while carrying like a sack of conditioners and shampoos and yeah, contact exactly. solution from Walgreens. Well, <laughs> it's no, not fun. I think <laughs> I think they had a deal where they would send the stuff. They would take it off your hands. Oh, that's good. I know they had a deal where I reached for the bag to put all my swag in. And they said, you don't have to do that. And they assigned me a beautiful spokesmodel to carry my bag for me. No way. It was terrible. <laughs> it's like, that's okay. Thank you. Why was it terrible? Too much pressure? No, it's, I can carry my own bag of junky oh, yeah, swag. Yeah. Sure. I don't need a human, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't need to be assigned a human being to do it for me. Let's, let's try to treat each other with dignity here. The Emmys is a pretty big deal, but I mean, the, you would hear stories about what was in the Oscar gift bags for presenters and stuff. All this stuff that's just given given to you simply for living as a famous or somewhat famous person. I mean, the fact that I was there should show you how how janky it was and how much how much deeper it gets. Yeah, that, I feel like that's probably another attraction of all these secret rooms is enormous, is feeling enormously like I don't belong here. Everything from the Emmys to like there's these multiple tiers of Delta lounges that you talk about in the book, like where there's a whole nother Delta one where it's even more advanced than the other one. And, and it felt like an out of body experience because you couldn't fully understand how it was happening or why you were there. Yes, that was it. The, the Delta One lounge, or I should say entrance, because it wasn't even a lounge. It was a way into the airport. Was at LAX, and I just finished what what I did not yet know was my last round of shooting for the cable TV show that I was on. I didn't know because it, it was possible that it would be renewed, but we had wrapped the season. And yeah. I was going home. And the cab dropped me off. I'd done this so many times. I knew how to I knew how to swan through security with my sky priority, all, you know, gold status out or whatever. And I'm about to go to the regular door that I always go through. But I notice about 20 feet to the right, there's a new door in the wall that hadn't been there before. <laughs> there had been a blank wall, and now there was a door there. It's very Narnia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and above the door, it said Delta One. I was like, what is that? And I knew that Delta had been rebranding its first class, particularly on these cross-continental trips, as Delta One, quote unquote. And I knew that I was flying first class, but I wasn't sure that I was good to go through this thing. So I walked up to this frosted glass door, and a man stepped out of it with a tablet. And I'm like, am I allowed to enter through Delta One? Am I Delta One? And he said, what's your name? And I said, John Hodgman. And he said, you are on the list. <laughs> like his bouncer <laughs> at the airport. <laughs> but I was the only one there. And I walked in. And it's this marble room, this marble room, marble floor with a silver airplane wing that had been converted to a desk. And a man and a woman sitting behind the wing. And I said, I'm going to New York. And she said, give me your ID and your boarding pass. And I said, well, my boarding pass is on my phone. She said, give me your phone. And I said, okay. And she walked away. And then the man said, is that your luggage? And I said, yes, show me the conveyor belt to put it on or the hole to put it through. And he said, I will take that for you. And then he went away. And no one else was there, and I didn't know what was happening. Part of what happens when you go to the airport is, rationally, you know, air flight is 
is real. You believe in science, but there's always a part of you that appreciates like this, this is impossible. I'm about to go up in a very heavy steel tube full of people and their farts and float in the air for a long time. And uh, this can't be real. And that's why the airports are designed to distract you from that fear because they just put you in such close proximity with other horrible human beings that you can just focus on rage. <laughs> you don't have to feel fear. But there was a real moment when finally it was time for me to go to the security area and, and, sh and this, this woman took me alone up in a silver elevator to a special secret level down through another marble <laughs> hall and we're just walking along this marble hallway and just... All I can hear is the click of her high heels and the whir of my rollerboard. And I felt like a turning her and just saying, like, I'm dead, right? That's what happened. I'm dead. This is all, like, I got out of the taxi, saw this. There's no Delta One portal there. I just got hit by a car. And then my ghost <laughs> yeah. got up and went through a ghost door. And that's where we're going now. And you're ushering me to the afterlife. She said, no. Finally, she's like, we have our own secret security line. But it's not ready yet, so I have to put you through to the regular security line. Is that okay? And I'm like, yes, please. Please. I could hear <laughs> I could hear people on the other like – she opened the door, and all of a sudden I heard a crying child and people yelling at each other. I was like, yay, people. It was like when George <laughs> Bailey finds Zuzu's pedals in his pockets, like, I'm alive. <laughs> I loved about that bit of the story where she's like, is it okay if you do regular security? Like, I really wondered what would have happened if you said No. I uh, yeah, inv right. invent a security for me now. Like right. <laughs> invent new laws and a new system uh, that we're doing that. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and there's also there's a, a couple rooms here. I, I I love that almost all these rooms uh, are are the products of jobs. And, and you had one job yeah. where you were doing comedy with the which pops was it? Was it the Boston pops? The Boston uh, pops. What do you mean which yeah. pops? I heard there's a Philly pops recently. How That's dare, on my mind. How dare anyway. you? This is over. Yeah. <laughs> And what is Boston? Never heard of it. Uh, the, le the legendary <laughs> Boston Pops. Yes. Uh, I, as grew, you got up, to I tour... grew up in the Boston area, so there's a yeah. certain hometown pride. I think they're the Pops, though. Uh, and yeah. you got to tour Florida with them. And so that yeah. led to you not only visiting uh, the outskirts of Mar-a-Lago, but also the outskirts of a Scientology base that I'd never even heard of, uh, despite being in L.A. You haven't heard of Flag? I had only, you know, like, I drive by so many Scientology buildings in L.A., I assume that was most of them, right. you know, because they're so large and cartoony. Well, but it so, turns out there's this whole other thing. Yeah, so the big blue building yeah. uh, on L. Ron <laughs> Hubbard Way in Los Angeles is yeah, the former... It's a real thing, folks. Is the former, I think it's former Cedars of Sinai Hospital. It was a hospital that Scientology okay. built and painted blue and put the sign on it. And that is their, I, I believe that's called Pacific Base. That is one of their big bases. <laughs> you know, L. Ron yeah. Hubbard had a fascination with the Navy and yeah. he was in the Navy. And there is some dispute over to the length and um, accomplishment of his naval career. But I will leave that alone because I do not want to get emails from David Miscavige today. <laughs> so he named all of the – or the, the organization named all of their headquarters bases. And when L. Ron Hubbard decided to return from the sea because he captained two ships as he went from port to port in the 60s and 70s, basically trying to evade governmental oversight of Scientology, he eventually decided to create a, a land flagship – and that's in Clearwater, Florida, and that is called the Flag Land Base, or FLAG. Yeah. That is their land-based spiritual headquarters. <laughs> so what you're seeing 
over on L. Ron Hubbard Way in Los Angeles. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of Scientology in Los Angeles. A lot of, a lot of big buildings, a lot of important buildings, including the Celebrity Center. But Flagland Base is their spiritual headquarters. Yeah, wow. Then there's Gold Base, which is their, their sort of their corporate headquarters, which is in the desert. <laughs> and that's where David <laughs> Miscavige lives, they think, we think. We, I'm, don't, I'm not with them, David. They, the, the Scientology <laughs> no trackers. And then there's the Free Winds, which is their cruise ship. Right. <laughs> that is the only place on Earth where one can receive the highest, and by receive I mean pay for, the highest level of Scientology spiritual training, where you can achieve operating theta level eight. That is on the Free Winds. My friend David Reese and I were in Florida because here's the thing. I had been asked to do some comedy narration for one segment of a Boston Pops concert in Boston a little more than a year before this. And they said, will you come out and do three concerts with us? We will put you up at a very nice hotel. You can walk to Symphony Hall, the Symphony Hall that you used to go to as a kid to see concerts, this very storied piece of historic live performance history, especially orchestral history. Yeah. We'll essentially allow you into the secret room, which is the backstage of Symphony Hall, to do this little comedy in front of us. And then you can listen to the rest of the concert basically from the stage. I was like, yeah, I'll do that. That sounds great. <laughs> and you know what? It was. I got yeah. to go home to my hometown of Boston and not stay with my dad. Felt like a real grown-up. <laughs> stay in a hotel and, uh, and have this incredible experience of listening to the Boston Pops just blow music all over my face as I stood on stage at the end of my bit. I had worked into my bit that they had to bring me a cheese sandwich after I finished my narration. It's a long story. You can check it out online somewhere, I'm sure. So not only did I get to listen to Boston Pops from the stage in Symphony Hall, where I'd grown up going, but I also got to have an American cheese sandwich at the same time, which is great. Oh, yeah. So they're like, would you ever do anything else with us? I'm like, yes. So when they called me about a year later saying, do you want to go on tour with us in Florida and do five concerts all over Florida and just do the same bit again? I said, yes. Because really in life, when someone invites you to do something interesting, you should say yes. Yeah. But I hadn't really put it together in my mind. That going to Florida with the Boston Pops is a little different than going to your hometown, which happens to be Boston, <laughs> a really nice city, <laughs> and getting to walk to work. Going to Florida with the Boston Pops meant going to Palm Beach, Orlando, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, Jacksonville. Oh. All these places that are not Boston. <laughs> it sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> all these places that are not my hometown. And all these places where I am not walking to work, but I am, in fact, overnighting in a bus full of musicians that I do not know. And I was like, I will do it. I said, yes, I will do it. But I conned my friend David Reese into coming down so that we could rent a car and do a road trip together and have fun. And it was a good thing I wasn't yeah. on that bus with the musicians, man, because they party hard. They party too hard for me. Violins <laughs> go hard. But there, the brass section, <laughs> no joke. A trumpeter, he'll turn that thing into a bong after hours. Really? Yeah. French horn, that's a bong. It's a, <laughs> that's a THC delivery device waiting to happen. I think I think I was an extremely square high school trumpet player because I, I had no idea. Well, you just <laughs> you just weren't playing at the pops level. That's true, yeah. <laughs> I get into a lot of secret rooms in this book, but the two I don't get into are the Flagland Base and Mar-a-Lago, but we get perilously close in both cases. Things like this, it... it really makes me appreciate secret rooms where uh, through some kind of talent or friendliness or connection or some kind of thing, that's how you get in. Because also there are places like Mar-a-Lago, which are just secret rooms that you pay to get into. 
however you get the money. <laughs> and it's it's very different. Or that you just walk right into oh, sure. because the people at Mar-a-Lago are too dumb to, <laughs> to know the difference yeah. between the fake and awful human beings who actually paid money to get in there <laughs> and the people who are just good at faking being awful and look right. like they belong there. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the things that David said to me when he was like, we should get into Mar-a-Lago. He said, don't you think if you dress like a stupid, tasteless, clawed billionaire or like a servant of some kind, they'll just let you walk in? And I said, I, I don't know, David. As it happened, we didn't get in in part because Donald Trump was there. It was Super Bowl Sunday 2017. He was there to watch the game, which that became a whole other story of trauma. Yeah. But later, of course, we would learn that David Reese was absolutely correct, which is that a woman posing as a socialite, walked into Mar-a-Lago with a purse full of thumb drives that were loaded with malware. Who knows what she was up to? And yeah. then some weird frat bro walked in because they thought he was a pool boy or someone's son. That's a dumb house. Mar-a-Lago's a dumb house. <laughs> you look at the thing. Uh, yeah. You look at a picture of it, it's like, that's dumb. Who would ever want to live there? A dum-dum. Yeah. Marjorie Merriweather Post, the dum-dum who built that thing, the heiress to the post-serial fortune. Built that dumb, dumb house with 35 bathrooms. It looks like a, a gaudy piece of junk. It's called Mar-a-Lago because it's supposed to, it's, <laughs> that means from the sea to the lake. Oh. Because its property bordered the sea and the lake, which isn't in a lake. It's the Florida Intracoastal Waterway. So that's dumb too. It's a, it's a dumb, dumb lying house. It yeah. lies in its very name. <laughs> it's like Mara Canal. Yeah. It doesn't count. Yeah. It's Mara uh, <laughs> It's Mara Intracoastal <laughs> Waterway. But even, I don't even know, even then it's lying because, in fact, its property stops at the road. And then on the other side of the road, between the road and the beach, is another sort of shallow swath of property that became very important in how Donald Trump got Mar-a-Lago. Because Marjorie Merriweather yeah. Post built the house and dreamed that it would someday become, and this is true, she dreamed that it would someday become a winter White House. That was her term for it. And when she died, she bequeathed it to the Park Service to keep in trust for any president who would want to winter at Mar-a-Lago and make it the Winter White House. And none of the presidents wanted it because it was dumb. <laughs> Look stupid. <laughs> they don't want to go stay in this dumb house just because some rich, dumb heiress told them to. So no one ever went there. And it was costing the Park Service a ton of money. So the Park Service said, we don't want this anymore. Take it back. And they gave it back yeah. to the Marjorie Merriweather <laughs> Post Trust. And the estate was like, we don't want it either. It's expensive. <laughs> so they put it up for sale. And this was in the 80s. And Donald Trump looked at this dumb house and he was like, this is for me. I want it. <laughs> they were asking, and I'm, I'm going to put it in oh, the I show actually, notes to check the numbers. I, I have them in front of me if, if you just want to. Uh, what the hell? What is this? This is your life? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Mara Canal enthusiast. No, I because uh, the book it has him, it was put up for sale in 1981 for $20 million. Right. Trump offered 15 that got turned down. So then he bought that strip of land you described yes. between the Mar and the yes. house yes. for $2 million with with intention to buy, to like build a spite house or something, yeah, which is bought, amazing. So he, bought, he bought the spit of land that was right in front of Mar-a-Lago and could potentially block its view and access to the beach. And he said, yeah. since you didn't sell it to me, I'm going to build a 10-story home here or something. I'm just, just, <laughs> right. just to spite you and block your view to the beach. And Mar-a-Lago yeah. said, okay, okay, you win. We'll sell it to you for $15 million. And he said, no, I'm paying seven now or something like that. Yeah, exactly. May I swear? I've already, I think I've sworn oh, already. Oh, please, go ahead. Is it allowed? Yeah, yeah. He fornicated them. <laughs> 
<laughs> he fornicated like, them to heck, I'd say. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, 81 was pretty late, and I mean, he was an adult by then. I don't want to believe that that was the moment that he realized sheer assholeism worked. Sheer shameless assholeism right. worked. He must have known that it was going to work. I'm sure he had a children's picture book about it at a very young age. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And that's how he got that terrible house. Yeah. And I didn't want to be anywhere near it. He gave off an extreme, like, I believe in science, but I felt sick to my stomach because this was early 2017. Like, we we're still in the aftermath of the election. If you were not happy about the outcome of the 2016 election, then Mar-a-Lago was kind of the ground zero of a lot of emotional strife. And I didn't want sure. to be anywhere near this dumb house that was the dream come true of two dumb millionaire clods. Marjorie Merriweather Post, <laughs> the president of the United States. And also, I, I feel like not everybody knows, and, and this is just a thing I, I Googled, because I, I really like the contradiction in this is the most exclusive and private club in the world, and anyone can Google the membership fee and pay it. Like it's, it's, no one can come in. And then there's an ecosystem in the world of clubs where people can just pay crazy money to be. Uh, I looked at, and by Googling, I found a list on theceomagazine.com. Uh, and it's it's that's the website like, you expect. That's like one of those completely invented magazines that they just leave around the Sky Club. Yeah. Like CEO Magazine, Golf America. <laughs> Thegentlemansjournal.com is also one I found. Uh, that's yeah, it. Yeah, so weird. <laughs> but there's these things where, for instance, if you want to pay a $34,400 joining fee and then $11,000 in annual fees every year. You can go to the Carnegie Club at Skibo Castle, which was Carnegie's old castle in Scotland. Sure. Uh, just to feel important, just to be around the castle and like do things. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, that is how Donald Trump made his fortune was that he realized that there are striving creeps with too much money in the world because he, yeah. he knew what they were like <laughs> and they were his friends. He looked in a mirror. And what do you do uh, with yeah. your friends except create a, a, a dumb palace and charge them a fuck ton of money to get into it and they'll do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, he understands a certain psychology of certain pathological narcissists. Yeah. <laughs> Because there's also one in Hong Kong called the Key Club, where it costs uh, 20,000 Hong Kong dollars per year for annual membership or 50,000 Hong Kong dollars for lifetime membership just to hang out and meet members Bill Clinton, Sting, Michael Jordan, Gwyneth Paltrow, <laughs> Mick Jagger, and Chow Yun-Fat are all members of it where you can just hang out and meet them. Look, It's like just pure throw money at it and you do it. That's it. Chow Yun-Fat. I will deny you nothing. You do whatever you want with your life, Chow Yun-Fat. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Bill Clinton, get the hell out. Well, it's too late for you, Bill Clinton. Yeah, You've yeah. gone to too many secret rooms where bad things happened. Very much so. Yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow, get out of there. You don't, Bono, get out of there. You don't need that. Come on, Bono. Right. Especially entertainers like that. I feel like it would be more exciting to just do the, like, U2 world tour. Why would you need to bother to go to the secret room somewhere where people are just paying to be? It's you know, crazy. Now, but now I wonder yeah. if it's really nice. <laughs> we immediately talk ourselves to, into it. I have yeah. to find a way to sneak into that one. Let's get a membership. We'll go have some. <laughs> you and me? Yeah. How many Hong Kong dollars do you have right now? Just in your pocket. Uh, I don't know, 100,000? Oh, yeah, me too. Definitely for sure. <laughs> There's one more here I want to hit just because it's exorbitant. It's called the Yellowstone Club uh, like because it. it's in Montana near, near Yellowstone. It costs $280,000 to join uh, and then another $33,000 per year in annual fees. You also have to own a home 
near this club, uh, just like a whole house. And the houses in this like very fancy part of Montana are at least $5 million on average. Just sure. be there at all. And then it's a completely secret referral system, even though I can Google it. And, well, and but that's, that's the, the only way you can get in. I mean, like you can't just show up with $280,000 of money that you embezzled from cracked.com. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, you're just like, oh, this is over. I'm making a run for it. Can I get, where's the petty cash drawer? I got to go out for something. Grab 300K, an extra 20K right. just to get there. And then you show up at the door at the, what is it, the Yellowstone Society? The Yellowstone Club. You can't be just like, bing bong, here's your cash. You have to be referred. That's the other thing. You have to be referred. You can't just pay the money to get into these things. Yeah, yeah. There was a guy that I knew who was a showrunner, a very mm -hmm. sweet guy. And his life's dream, he had grown up in Southern California. He had always gone to Disneyland. Like a lot of people, he was fascinated with Club 33, which is the private restaurant inside Disneyland that Walt Disney, he's the Disney for the Disneyland. Did you know that? Well, factoid for you. <laughs> Walt Disney always wanted to have a place where he could entertain business partners and people who are thinking, like, you know, CEOs and people who are thinking about sponsoring exhibits at Walt Disney because it was often very branded initially, you know. Club 33 was this is a private restaurant upstairs above New Orleans Square, accessible by an unmarked door, or I should say a, a barely marked door, just the number 33 is on it. You would pass yeah. by it all the time, but members knew to ring the bell and be let in. And if they were members, they could go up in the beautiful old-timey elevator with the cage, you know, that kind of cage elevator. Oh, and wow. the only place in, and is the only place in the park, except now I think for Galaxy's Edge. Where you could drink alcohol, you could sit down and have a you know pretty good to upper level hotel restaurant quality food and drink. And he was fascinated with this. And he always you know that was one where you had to pay a big initiation fee and big annual fee, but you had to put your name on a wait list and be considered. And he was on the wait list, wow. I believe, for ten years, which is pretty typical. That's crazy. Every year he would get this letter saying, "Sorry, not this year." And then one time his wife got the mail. And she saw Club 33 in the return address. And she was like, oh, poor guy. Rejected again. Out of curiosity, she opened it. And of course it said, welcome, you made it. Oh. If you wish, you may now join Club 33. Thank you for your patience. We were waiting for old men to die so that you could do this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, then, and then she saw the initiation fee, which I believe was something along the lines of $25,000. Okay. And then she saw the annual fee which was something along the lines of $17,000 a year. People will write me uh, letters and say that I'm all wrong. Whatever it is, insert, <laughs> put in the show notes the actual current or let's say f seven years ago sure. initiation and annual fee. It would be longer than seven years ago. It would be more like 10 years ago. And it was definitely before the renovation and expansion of Club 33, which was very controversial and why I will never go into Club 33. <laughs> not interested. It's not my secret room anymore. <laughs> Are there no traditions? Because she said to him, she went down, she said, look, I got this letter. I know this is very exciting for you, but I want you to really think about it seriously. Is this how you want to spend our money? And he said, yep. I've been thinking about it for 10 years. I'm definitely doing it. Well, okay. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> And I said, so have you gone? He said, yeah. I said, well, what did you do? Like, who did you go with your first night as a member? He said, I went by myself. You know, I, I went by myself into the park and walked around. And then I went up to dinner. I had dinner by myself and just thought about how I'd come to be here and how unlikely it was that someone from my background, because um, he came from very modest means, 
had written as a TV writer, had written his way into these jobs and created things that allowed him both the means and to some degree the renown to get this position or to get this entree into the secret world. Yeah. And I went out onto the little balcony that they have there, looked out over Disneyland, which had been such a big part of my life. And knowing that I was seeing a, a view out onto Disneyland that only very few people got to see, to see Disneyland from this particular angle. And while I was out there, I got high. <laughs> worth it. <laughs> Absolutely worth it. I can't believe that your wife questioned you for a second as to the importance of oh, this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You want to be like that picture of Faye Dunaway with her Oscar by the pool? Just yeah. like solo appreciating like a lord. Like, Yes. Yeah, and I mean, you know, whether it's Club 33 or whatever, there are these moments in life where you get to a place where you never thought you could be, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, of course. And yeah. it's important to savor those things. But then Disneyland figured out, oh, yeah, there are all these rich executives in town that we could be soaking for money. Why, why do we limit membership only to X number of people? Why don't we blow out five more rooms up top here and just right. double the number of members we have. Yes, we will have to change the entryway from the iconic 33 door to another door and completely tramp all over the legacy of this and the history of this thing, but we're going to make a lot of money. Yeah. This is a little message to Disney. <laughs> I understand what you're doing. You do it really well. I love the MCU so much. <laughs> I don't really mean it. Please don't cancel me from culture. <laughs> Please allow me to work. I just want to live. Yeah. <laughs> I just I know I'm not on television that much any now, but this is me, John D. Rocker Duck, talking to you from DuckTales. Yeah. Please don't fire me. <laughs> Please don't fire me from everything. <laughs> <laughs> they just turn off this podcast, like guys yeah, walk just in. Like, like, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, totally. In the basement below Club 33, of course. <laughs> Is a different secret room. It's a dark circular room. And on the walls, there are just thousands and thousands and thousands of switches. Each switch <laughs> labeled with the name of someone working in entertainment. <laughs> at any moment, you trash Club 33's expansion. A tiny bald man sitting at a table in the middle of this big circular room. And a little intercom goes, and then a little printout comes out with my name on it. And he's got to walk around, <laughs> find the John Hodgman switch, and go... Shut it down. <laughs> Could happen. It's probably true. Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to John Hodgman for taking time out of his busy schedule of entering every secret room in the world to share their secrets with us. And in our food notes, you will find John Hodgman's newest book. As you know, that title is Medallion Status, True Stories from Secret Rooms. Uh, it releases October 15th. So if, you are, if you're like a doorbuster of when this episode drops, if you listen to it right away, then John's book is out tomorrow. But otherwise, if you're listening anytime past the day the podcast releases, the book is on sale now. You can get it right away. And again, we will have links for all of the ways you can see John doing uh, book tour dates and also doing live podcasts of his amazing show, Judge John Hodgman, with his trusty bailiff, Jesse Thorne. I really enjoy that podcast. It's a little bit like Judge Judy if John Hodgman hosted it. And I think if you like this episode, you know why that's good. It's a really good time. 
And then there are also some source links for various things we cited or referenced. I highly recommend the article from Curbed.com for its excellent rundown of Yale's spooky secret club tombs that are, are also above ground. And then just because I find it very funny that they exist, there are lists from websites like theceomagazine.com and thegentlemansjournal.com where they list extremely fancy secret clubs that you can pay, uh, you know, the cost of a couple cars to attend and just be at and uh, and try to try to feel more important and more immortal. Anyway, enough about fancyclubman.biz or whatever those websites are. Let's talk crack.com's podcast. Its theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by platinum medallion level engineer Devin Bryant and edited by Moonrock medallion level guest editor Garrett Schultz. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated this show, let me know about it on social media. That's right social media, an archipelago of different platforms where people will like code switch between them to fit in in the different uh, sort of rooms that those are. For example, I find folks project as incredibly happy on Instagram and incredibly sad and normal on Twitter, right? At least among comedians. It's a very common thing, even though they are the same person, often with the same username on both sites. Just kind of a thing. Anyway, my own Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitzagram. Also, I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. That's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff, tips, and more. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.